want to welcome you all to the first episode of Insight Podcast. Thank you for joining me. And it feels so good and so right to have Lady D here with me for my first guest. Welcome, D. Hi. Hi. I'm, I'm just cheesing because when I see you, I'm like happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's mutual, girl. It's mutual. Um, obviously, your name is synonymous with Chicago house music culture, but also worldwide. You've toured Asia, uh, Russia, Europe, North America, obviously. Um, you've played at the big Chicago festivals, North Coast, West West, um, but also South by Southwest, Lollapalooza. You've been featured in dozens of media pieces from documentaries like Girl and Girls Gone Vinyl and slip cue to print books. You've been in uh, Disco Demolition, you were featured. And um, what was the other one? How to DJ Write. And um, do you remember House as well, right? You were in that one too. And you've been published also in um, media outlets, newspapers, magazines, as well as been on radio with NPR, BBC, which is close to my heart, um, <laughs> Volcolo. And more recently, you were elected board president for Collaboration Theatre, the first black woman to be elected to that position. Congratulations. Thank it's amazing. You. And you are in a, I believe it's a sort of advisory capacity to Columbia College. Um, I think the title is Creative Industry Liaison. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which sounds really cool. And you have a master's in health communication from Northwestern. How about that? <laughs> and this is just a little summary. You know, there's more. There's more. Um, but you're a force to be reckoned with. And it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. You make me blush. I'm getting all hot under this hat. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for having me. I look forward to, to um, this long line of you doing new podcasts uh, in sight. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, it has a few different meanings, right? So I liked that too, that it's yeah. a little deeper. Yeah, in but bringing people visually into the picture too, in sight. Um, if you spell it with a C, it means something quite different too, right? <laughs> so all the things. I like um, that. I wanted to start off, would you tell us a little bit, uh, not music oriented, but about this position you have with Columbia? I thought that was really intriguing. Yeah, I love the, I love the work that I do there. So, and I, cause I get to work with young people. Um, in 2015, a friend of mine was working there and um, sent me a message and said, we're looking for somebody who can advise the music students who could do career advising. And I thought about you right away. And would you be interested? And I said, sure, let me, you know, find out more about it. And I went and interviewed and they offered me the job. So I would go in like one day a week and just have appointments for like a whole morning and just talk to music students. And so, um, and then I also started giving workshops uh, in the music building and I really liked it, but I actually had a different job at the time. So I was doing, um, I was like doing marketing communications, digital publishing, which was 
during the time that I was going back and getting my master's. So um, this company was, you know, helping pay for the master's degree. I was handling all of their digital communications and, um, and I was also going and working at Columbia like one day a week. So I would tell them like, okay, on Tuesdays or Thursdays or whatever day it was, like I'll be in at noon or one or whatever it was. And then in the morning I'd be at Columbia. So I did that for about a year and they were like, listen, <laughs> you're either gonna work for us, we're paying for your masters partially. And um, I said, okay, so I told Columbia, I said, listen, I can't do this anymore. And then they tried to bring me in full time, but I was making more money at the other place. And plus they were paying for my master's, so I couldn't do it. Um, but then in 2018, they approached me and said, hey, we were thinking about you. Just wanted to see what's going on with you these days. And I was just about to leave the other job. Um, they were downsizing and I knew I was up on the chopping block. <laughs> so. So it was kind of perfect. It was really perfect also because my child was, um, had done a year of college in California and came back and didn't really like it in California and was kind of like being down on going to college. And so I was like, well, if I take this job, you can go here for free. And I think that you would like it there because it's all creative kids. One of the problems with the other school is that it had a lack of you know creativity um among the you know students and the majors that they offered and things like that um which i could have told them that at the time but <laughs> they don't listen to you when they're like 17 18. it's like you can right. okay mom sure <laughs> like, we listen then <laughs> yeah because um you know about to get their degree from columbia too so um so she's she's doing great there but when they offered me to, you know, the, um, an opening had come up and they were like, you know, we would really love for you to come back. And so that happened. And so I've been there since 2018 um, as a creative industry liaison, which is awesome. I work with students directly one-on-one -on -one with advanced portfolio um, development. And I also work with industry. So I do a lot of industry outreach creating opportunities for students to do internships or um, have employment. And so it's sort of the best of both worlds. But the component that I'm really most proud about is I design programming. So I create um, diversity programs for students, for you know, um, LGBTQ students, um, for you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color. I'm really sort of like the diversity lead within my department. So I create a lot of mentorship um, programming, um, you know, just informational panels with companies that have diverse interests and um, are looking for culturally diverse students um, to give opportunities to. So that's really one of the things that I love the most, but I love my job there. And I think Columbia is an awesome school, especially for creative students, for creative kids. Some of the best work that I've ever seen is, in, coming out of the students there. So, and they have a lot of famous grads too. I don't know if you've ever heard of like Lena Waithe or um, A.D. Bryant or, but it's funny, people in Chicago, almost everybody that I know in Chicago like did some time at Columbia. <laughs> like, <laughs> like 
Chance the Rapper, Kanye West, Common, you know, so whether they finish or not, like they've been in those places and um, that's just what Columbia represents to Chicago. So it's nice to be part of that. Definitely, definitely. I want to come back in a little bit to that um, creativity, talk about your theater work a little more and also the importance you mentioned, um, you know, diversity and working with diverse and creative people. But yeah. first, um, for those who may be watching who are, who are younger, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would take us back to when you first started playing in Chicago and maybe paint a picture of what um, the Chicago music scene was like then in ways that maybe it's different, you know, different now. Um, yeah. and what really drew you in about that? Mm. Yeah, um, well, I started playing in 95. Um, around that time, it was house music from, you know, one side of the city to the other, but it was really, you could go anywhere seven nights a week and listen to imbibe house music. Um, it was um, a lot of big clubs, small clubs, uh, loft parties, uh, undergrounds, raves, big raves, small raves, in between raves. <laughs> and, um, so a lot was happening at that time. A lot of collaboration um, with people. Um, real uh, like the development of crews. So a lot of, a lot of crews doing their thing. Um, and you had a lot of labels, a lot of labels in Chicago at the time. So, you know, from casual to prescription, to guidance, to, you know, the stuff that Derek was doing with the Red Nail Kids and Blue Cucaracha and Organico Records and, um, it was really a, a great time for, for it. Um, people were really get putting Chicago on the map. So people were traveling like Sneak and Spencer Kinsey and Derek, and they were going over to the UK a lot. So that was bringing a lot of attention to Chicago. Um, and then you had people like Daft Punk who were coming to the Midwest to and to Chicago, really, because everybody wanted Chicago, you know, Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. So I, I would say like that time in the 90s was the second wave after that first thing with Marshall Jefferson and Steve Zuckerley and Frankie Knuckles and them sort of introducing um, Chicago House to Europe and to the UK that time in Chicago, the, you know, early 90s to mid 90s was really instrumental in letting them know that Chicago had progressed. And uh, the sound now was really big, really booming, really complex, um, and extra, extra funky, um, really, and, you know, and deep, because you got to talk about people like Larry Hurd, and Glenn Underground and Boo Williams. And um, Gene Ferris, who was very tracky at the time. I love tracky Gene. I always tell him that. I'm like, ooh, I wish tracky Gene would come back. Um, but, you know, then there was also like the disco thing 
a, a lot of disco loops and you know Paul Johnson and we were we were like edit capital I think I think nobody did edits better than Chicago DJs because we grew up with that stuff and that disco was early house as well so um so really you know when we started recycling that stuff that that was popping yeah <laughs> so Chicago had it going on in the mid 90s it was a mix of everything and literally you could leave a party go to another party you could party 24 hours a day if you wanted to it was like it was just like that type of environment and so um yeah Chicago was hot then <laughs> that's what I remember so the I'm painting a picture like my first gig was in a shoe store um, on the north side uh, at Clark and Belmont, a place called Soul Junkies. And it was accidental, it was by accident. This girl put me on flyer and told me I was playing. And then <laughs> um, I showed up because she was my roommate. <laughs> but she was, um, she was a girl party promoter and that was unusual at the time. Um, and then she went on to move to New York and, and throw really big parties and um, build a really big brand there called Basic in, uh, Basic NYC. So Begonia, shout out to her because um, if she hadn't put me on that flyer, I don't know that I would have ended up being on a flyer. And um, I was dating Mel Hammond at the time and Javon was, you know, we all lived together in a loft with a bunch of other people, like typical 20 somethings. And um, we were, like uh, a family, it was like friends with weed or something, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of, you know, turntables in that loft. It was at least six pair of turntables in that loft and a whole studio and um, people would come in and out, you know, Halo and the kids from Vibonauts and we would throw some raves, you know, or loft parties or whatever. and. Derek and Mark Farina and Chris Nazuka and um, Scott Song and those guys had lived in the loft upstairs. And um, so that building was kind of known for being like a party building and, and then Mozzie and uh, Motion and a bunch of those kids had moved in um, into their old loft. So it was just a fun time. We were young, we didn't have any responsibilities and we, basically like slept during the day woke up and then all of a sudden you just hear everybody sort of in their rooms playing music um you know and we do that until about 12 o'clock at night and then we go to shelter and or red dog or wherever you know the hot night was and we go party or we go play somewhere so um it just kind of snowballed after that first gig in this in the shoe store uh I just started getting booked. A lot of promoters came out that day to see me um, because she had promoted it and advertised that I was gonna be playing. And I think they were curious how that was gonna turn out. <laughs> Cause they had seen me at the clubs, you know, they knew me from the clubs, but they didn't know me as a DJ. But um, I took it seriously. I worked hard, you know, Javon and Mel were very good about telling me when I was terrible, so. I worked hard to not be terrible. So, cause you had to have a thick skin cause they would be like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought I was practicing, <laughs> I thought I was playing. No, turn that off. 
think about it. <laughs> so I think that it really helped me. It really helped me. So I'm, I'm not the type of person that's that sensitive. So it made me work harder. Yeah, I want to ask about that, actually, because um, there has been such a necessary move in recent years, right, for women to be supportive of more women getting into the industry and DJing. And I'm well behind that and a part of that. Um, but I reflect on my own coming up as a DJ, and it was all men, right, who were there to influence and um, guide. And probably a, quite a bit of that for you too, though I think there were more women involved in Chicago than, than in Milwaukee. But those voices, um, of, of like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not playing. Um, I feel like now that would be um, not taken so kindly to, and maybe this is my projection, but I also think there's a lot to be said for that if the intention is, is right behind it. What's mm -hmm. your take on that? Yeah, um, you know, I have to say, I, I grew up with Javon and Mel, we were, you know, I knew them in my childhood. And so it was not, um, I knew it was coming from a good place, uh, wanting to be helpful. And, and, and our relationship was such that they didn't have to mince any words. Um, and if you played out and blew it, people wouldn't shine you on. They would be like, <laughs> you know, they may not say anything. And you really wanted, like if Derek popped into the party that you were playing, you hope that you did not bomb, right? Because you want him to stay and have a good time. If you weren't hitting on all cylinders, he was gonna, you know, do a drive-by and, and be like, all right, I gotta go. <laughs> so you knew if you were doing well or not by the things that people did, but um, I had also, Cycle Bitch and Terry Bristol, um, at the time they were running Crowbar, like it was their house, you know? And um, when I had questions, they were very open to getting on the phone with me and, you know, letting me and just answering questions for me about negotiating, about money, about some of those things that are super important, not just what's happening, you know, technically on the decks, like, what am I doing? Am I not train wrecking that sort of thing? But how do I move forward within this industry and make sure that people aren't taking advantage of me and things like that. And so they were extremely helpful on that side. And, um, and they were just fun to talk to, you know. Um, so do I think people are sensitive? I think we definitely live in a more sensitive time sensitive in some good ways and sensitive in some ways that are probably not the way that I would approach things, but we grew up differently. Our parents came from a different era. They raised us differently. We were raised a certain way and our kids are now being raised a different way. So it always changes. Uh, I'm glad because they have to make a life that they like living in. And we were young and we made the life that we wanted to live in. And I think to the extent that we could, and I think they're doing 
probably much more to push the needle forward. Uh, and I, I kind of commend that. So I think that you have to find your lane, whatever it is. Girls are gonna do what girls wanna do. And if that is to be around another group of women that you love and support, and you feel like that push you in a way that feels supportive as opposed to antagonistic, then do that. You know, that's, that's what it is about. I think that um, even in the last couple of years, I found the, that people were saying to me a lot, like, oh man, you're so good. I never seen a girl on the decks before. What, what, it's 2018? And I'm, I start hearing this again. So it was like a full circle moment where I was thinking, oh, this is, this is unusual to be hearing this. I thought it was kind of a joke. And I, and I kept saying that to people, are you serious? <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, I never, never seen a girl before on, on the DJs, the DJ. And, um, and that was remarkable to me. And that kind of was a prompt to me to do something differently. And I, I love Super Jane and I wish, you know, that was something that could have been revisited, but time has changed. And so, for me, it was about what's going on now and what and who am I vibing with and what what's really happening. And for me, that was um, Lori Branch and Beatty Girl, who just kind of came out of nowhere in terms of us being us having a connection. So Beatty Girl was throwing parties with a, a group called Peach Presents, and they started booking me for events. And these were parties that were focused on um, gay women. And so um, to be invited into that, to be welcomed as an ally, that was awesome. And so she, when she said, you know, hey, I'm thinking about DJing, I was like, definitely you should. And um, I showed her some things and she just took it off from there. And um, I know that John Simmons worked with her a little bit. So a few, it takes everybody, right? If you're, if you like somebody and you feel like their heart's in, this, in the right place, like she was such a historian to me already. That's why I, I could respect that she wants to DJ and she's a lot younger than us. She's, you know, in her twenties. And um, if somebody in their twenties approaches you and they have the right spirit and the right mind about it. I think you should do what you can to help them. So, um, and then Lori, Lori and I, you know, she's a pioneer. She was there in the beginning with the boys, with the chosen few, with the Frankies, with the Ron Hardys. Um, you know, she was right there. Her Celeste Alexander, uh, Chrissy Henderson. Um, she calls herself First Lady at the time. She was like Chrissy Hot Mix Henderson. And they were doing battles with the boys. Um, they just didn't blow up in the way that the boys did, but they were playing all those spots. They were at Sawyer's, they were at these Gucci production parties and all of these places around the city where people were listening to house music when it first started, when it first exploded. So when I first heard about her was on a record that I signed to my label, Delectable. And um, it was a piece that Glenn Underground did with this guy, Charles Matlock. And Charles Matlock starts doing this roll call of people in Chicago or actually just DJs who he thought were legends. And he said, Lori Branch. And I was like, who is that? I had never heard of her. And this was like 2004. So I knew some of the girl DJs from when I was a kid, but the truth is, is that 
we only knew of a few at the time. There was like Steve, Steve Hurley's sister, Angie Hurley, and or Angie Saunders, Jesse Saunders' sister. And then um, those, it was just a few that I had heard of at the time. So it wasn't a lot. Um, so, and, and Chrissy, Chrissy went to our high school. So that's what we knew. So it's, it was, I think, harder for them in that time to get the recognition that they deserved and to stay recognized. It was just a different time then. But when you know better, you do better, right? So in the 90s, when I decided after college, after you know two years of grad school that, oh, I think I could do this DJing thing. You know, I was out there trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. I wasn't thinking about DJing, but once I started, I really loved it. And so it did start to feel like a viable career choice at the time, or at least a, you know, a very, very interesting creative practice to get involved in. And so it took me a lot of places and the more places it took me, the more dedicated I became. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that I don't know where we are now in this in this conversation, but girls, boys, all of them along the way taught me a lot. Now, are people too sensitive? I think you just have to do what works for you. <laughs> if I can wrap that up. <laughs> but you got me thinking about stuff that happened along the way. And I guess I haven't really thought about that stuff in a while. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, how much things have changed and where we came from and what it's like now and the whole male, female, non-gender conversation, mm -hmm. non-cisgender um, that we have now. It's really different and positive, but it is interesting to think about. And you brought up the women DJs back then um, and that they just weren't known as much. And I had that experience when I was digging doing my post for Black History Month last month. Um, and Laurie Branch's name is a name I've heard, but I came across this, the Fantastic Four. And mm -hmm. it was the first time I ever heard of the Fantastic Four. And I like to think that I'm fairly familiar with Chicago dance music history, right? I live just an hour away and I've, I've known you for however many years and the, all that crew you were talking about. We've worked together for decades and I like to think I've done my part to be aware, but I'd never heard of them. And I, it got me thinking, you know, why haven't I heard of the Fantastic Four? Why haven't I heard of that these women were playing in some of the same spaces and some of the, um, in the same era? And maybe they weren't doing as much production or maybe they weren't doing some of the things that some of the guys were doing, but it still struck me like it's still pioneering for these to be some of the first women. Right. So why don't I know about this? What's your take on that? Uh, well, I guess the long and short of it is, is that there's always something to learn. There's always something to learn. So I did not know that they together were the Fantastic Four. Um, I knew about each person individually. So I don't know if it's a matter of how much you do and how often you do it and for how long, right? So the consistency piece, um, I think, you know, brands are built 
over time. Sometimes it takes decades and sometimes it takes a short amount of time, but um, to be very consistent. So that consistency piece maybe was missing. Maybe they just didn't do enough shows together and brand themselves as that thing, which is one thing that we did as Super Jane that I think was attention getting um, to establish residencies in places. Um, I don't know that residencies in that way existed in 1982, 1983, 1984, right? Maybe if you're, you know, Frankie Knuckles at the warehouse or Ron Hardy at the music box, right? There was two marquee people at two marquee clubs, but there were so many other places to party around town and so many different crews moving in and out of those venues to do their events. You know, one weekend it might be you know, classic productions. The next weekend, it might be the Rude Boys. The next weekend, it might be Gucci promotions. So it was a lot of different crews doing their things in and out of, you know, South Side restaurants, South Side bars, lounges, you know, things like that. So, um, so maybe it was just a, a consistency piece that was, you know, keeping them from having that, that long lasting legacy, the longevity. Um, and then, yeah, I think that, you know, they went their separate ways and did different things. So um, Super Jane was, you know, pretty active together for at least 10 years. And, um, and then we would come back and do, you know, some reunion shows and things like that, like coming to Milwaukee and <laughs> playing for Jessica Fortune Fenner. <laughs> yeah, you know, some, and who knows, we might come out of retirement and do shows every now and then. It's a a great memory for a lot of people but we were able to garner national press like pieces in spin magazine and the cover of accelerator and um, pieces in herb magazine and individually we all did different things we all you know released uh, cd compilations and um and then you know colette of course has done many productions. Heather and myself have both started our own labels. Colette has a label now too. And so we did some of those industry things, those business pieces that sort of mark you within the industry as a mover or, or somebody who at least is serious about this profession. Um, like we weren't trying to be super cute or take off our clothes or, do gimmicky stuff, we, you know, basically put it out there on the line and um, people respected that. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's something you just have to either keep at or you will appear to be a flash in the pan. I mean, I have some dope cuts from people that have only made one record. Where are they now? I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that consistency piece and that branding piece, um, Super Jane definitely had that and you know Super Jane is near and dear to my heart when we had you up for the 20 year one of your final Super Jane collaborative gigs that was two years ago I think it was only two years that ago that was 2017 oh wow no way yeah <laughs> okay never mind um, <laughs> four years ago <laughs> yeah um, 
I was also at the first, I believe it was the first ever Super Jane gig at Shelter. Uh, wow. God, I don't even remember the first one. To be honest, I don't. Yeah, and it was interesting. You were playing, I think you were playing in separate rooms. It wasn't like um, all on the same decks at the same time. If I remember correctly, and my memory is terrible, so don't hold me to that. No but, <laughs> but you ladies have really been um, an influence on me because I think at that point, seeing you four, um, Colette, you, DJ Heather, and Dehoda, and then also Elena was sort of came after in Chicago and played with you guys when you came up here one time. Um, I had been in the music scene for years at that point and around DJs and booked DJs. Um, for some things. And it's not that I ever thought, oh, I, I don't think I can DJ, it's a man's world. But it never crystallized to me how much I wanted to until I saw you ladies doing it. I was like, man, I felt jealous. That was the first time that it crystallized for me. Like, I don't just want to be on the dance floor. I really want to do this. And when I've reflected, it took me years to realize that that was really important for me to see women doing it. Mm -hmm. um, for me to be able to quantify that. And so I just wonder if, if it had that much impact on me watching you, how much impact did it have on you to be able to do that with your friends who were women and have that sharing music experience together? Yeah, well, I had been playing for two years officially um, when we launched Super Jane. Um, and I just thought it was cool. Like I was so into girl power at that time. Like that was my, that's always been my mantra to be honest. Um, you know, that, that even manifests itself in the volunteerism, you know, the work that I do with Girls Rock Chicago, like I'm all for female empowerment. And so when the idea was floated past me about, you know, coming together to form a collective and do shows together. I was about it, about it. Like, I was like, cool, let's, you know, sign me up. I don't care, just whatever. Because I, I could only imagine what four people, four women together, what that would do. Like, I'd know, I saw what I had done in a couple of years. I was like, yeah, that, that would be even more powerful. Like all of us coming together, doing what we do and, um, and it would just have that much more impact. So yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. Like, and however I can support the, you know, the whole thing, whatever is needed, I'm into it because I would love to see women advance in this industry in general. So um, what I didn't know was that it would be as impactful for both men and women um, over the years. A lot of people would say like, guys would be like, y'all, you know, really influenced me to spin it. And, and I expected that from women. I did not expect it from guys. I didn't expect guys to be like, yeah, I started spinning because I saw you guys. And, and I always think to myself, like, did they see us? And it was like, if they can do it, I could do it. <laughs> like if those girls could do that, I could do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> do it or um or was it like really like 
<laughs> I always, that's all, that's my own little private joke that I just let y'all in on. <laughs> so, um, but I think that's cool either way. Like uh, whoever, whatever moves you in the moment, just let it move you. It shouldn't be like, man, they're girls. Why am I feeling this way? <laughs> like, um, okay, yeah, let that be your cue. So you got to listen for your own, you know, bells and whistles. And, um, and that's an interesting story that you shared too. Like it, it, it hurt you here to see that that could be you, but you were holding yourself back. And so, um, and so to finally like be truthful with yourself and the world, like once you can be truthful with yourself, you can, you can be truthful with anybody because you don't have to hide anything. Yeah. And how interesting it is that it sometimes takes a trigger to realize that. Mm -hmm. Like, it, I didn't even realize that that's what was going on, right? But seeing yeah. the ladies, it was like, oh man, I really want to do this. And it just, it never, you know, it probably did, but I was like, eh, you know, yeah. I'm just going to push that back down there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to read a quote of yours, going back to the um, collaboration role that you have, mm -hmm. um, that I saw in another article. And just, it really struck me as um, maybe relevant to the music industry and music community as well. So you were speaking about um, the mission of collaboration is theater for positive social change. And that's front and center in your mind as president. It means that as an organization, we will continue to elevate black and brown voices and share these stories while increasing our commitment to community involvement. Collaboration will lead the way in affirming Chicago as a place where diverse groups can achieve visibility, influence policies that dismantle systems and prioritize equity. And I just love that. And so much, um, there's been so much movement, right, to make, make electronic music a more inclusive and diverse place. And yet, from where I stand, I still feel there's an incredibly long way to go. And there's some really big gaps and pieces of it, not least when it comes to um, how people of color are represented. And so do you see that too? Do you see ways that what you said about collaboration could be transferred over into music and the need for that? Obviously, yeah. Um, houses, houses has been whitewashed in so many ways. And I think that it is, it's the results of a lot of things that had happened at the same time. So while, um, while Europe was really able to commodify house and turn it into a commodity there, uh, America didn't really embrace it in the same way, right? So major labels put money into remixes and that sort of thing, but radio stayed in the pocket of 
mainstream pop. And so not really having those outlets, you know, house grew in Chicago at the time that it did, because we also had radio. You can't deny the effect that radio had in sending out house music to millions and millions of ears at the same time. And so one of the reasons why it truly did explode here was because of radio. America has never wide, in a widespread way embraced house music as radio music. And so, um, so we weren't a, allowed to create commerce out of our passion, out of our craft and out of the things that we did for love, but to actually make it, you know, monetize it so that we could thrive from it. So the originators could thrive from it. And so it ended up being that only a handful of people really got to, I guess, enjoy the fruits of that. Um, and so while it's a thriving cottage industry in lots of ways uh, around America, you know, there's promoters in lots of different markets doing parties, maybe they make a few thousand bucks, maybe pay some DJs a, few, a little bit of money, maybe some, there's a few clubs that really um, are known for house music or whatever, and, and they do what they do. But in terms of like the black and brown faces that made and created house music, getting their comeuppance from it, that has never really happened in a, in a widespread way. And then, and then when people did figure out how they could uh, make it into more of a commercial entity and something like, you know, big raves, well, raves in the beginning did used to book the black DJs. And so it was more black DJs playing those raves than white DJs. There weren't that many white DJs. You have like a Terry Mullen and he'd be on like all the parties. Um, or, you know, when Bill came out, Bad Boy Bill, maybe, you know, but then you had like, uh, like the hard house side of things and hard house started introducing more Latino DJs and um, more white DJs, more white guys and white girls. So like people like Irene, I think about, and um, you know, even like um, Terry and Val who were doing more like big room tribal stuff. And so if you really break it down around that time, it was just like this division started to happen. So you'd have like bigger and big, bigger and bigger parties, but they wanted a bigger and bigger sound. And I would say a lot of black DJs were playing a little more soulful or a little more classic or a little more whatever it was that, that uh, a, a younger and younger crowd was not really vibing with. So I don't know if in the beginning it was like really thought out, like in terms of we don't want to book those black DJs. It was just more like their sound doesn't is doesn't embrace this boom, 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 hit you over the head all night long. And you have to think about, you know, the I would say the drug connection, right? So ecstasy and things like that that were fueling this desire to go faster and harder and faster and harder. And, um, you know, black people have always played with a lot more soul and a lot more like finesse and like um, we play songs, right? So we tell stories and we embrace this idea that you come there, you know, to receive some sort of message. And 
be taken away and elevated and lifted up, right? So a lot of our music centers on that type of experience. Whereas the other experience was more like, let's just get lost, let's get blitzed, let's party, you know, and then let's sweat our, you know, asses off and then uh, like do it again tomorrow. But it wasn't for a like particular reason, like, like life is hard and I wanna, you know, I want somebody to help me forget and to leave me in a better place, that sort of thing. It was more like just, testosterone and energy and young, you know, I don't know, but it was, it was different. Right. And so they wanted something different. And then you either were going to have to change what you did to fit in or do that or be booked in those places or be true to who you are and what moved you and find that audience that still wanted that. And so like over time, it became a smaller audience, but what was cool was that eventually, like the south side of Chicago, where House was, you know, had one of its original entry points, um, they started to do more parties and be more loud and be more present and be more, um, yeah, just have more of a presence around Chicago, which I think was great because it was pretty silent coming from that side of of the city for a long time. And um, and now I feel like there's more of a mixture between the north side and the south side and pulling the two sides together to say that, you know, we're all one city, we're one city. So yeah, I think equity and inclusion um, in, in dance music is very needed. I have to say like this year, uh, I was approached by both Tool Room Records and edm.com to and was featured on uh, both of those platforms who did not have to feature me who um, made an effort an intentional effort so it does take intentionality to say we're going to pull in more people of color because we realize that we have not been intentional in doing so in the past um, and and it shouldn't look like tokenism, like one person and that's good enough. We have our, you know, black indigenous person of color, like if they could wrap that all up in one person and make that be, make that fit, um, you know, the way that it would often happen sometimes like in corporate, um, in the corporate world. So I think that that's a, a place to start and, and that they, could, they should keep doing that and not just for Black History Month and, um, you know, Black History Month is every month, you know, every month. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, yeah, I, I feel like the mission for collaboration has always been around that. They've made it their life's work to um, change the, the landscape of theater in Chicago, which is predominantly a white world. And um, there's white theaters and, you know, Black theaters had to really work hard to gain recognition, to get reviewed, to, to get positive reviews, um, and to get the type of financial support. Um, and we're just dealing with America in general, America in general. So um, if you can stay the course though, you have a better chance of getting to that point. 
Um, but what happens is sometimes people start and they just don't have the support and then they have to stop. So, so they never really get to the point. But if you can stay in it and do things, um, you can move, you can push the ball a little bit further and, um, and, get, and get things done. So Collaboration's done a great job. I've, I've been involved with them for like the last 10 years at least, just doing things. And um, when I got invited to be on the board, that was pretty special. And then getting invited to actually be the president was you know, even more special. So. Um, I think they think that I'm an effective leader, and I feel like I have been in this in this first year. I have one more year in my term, and so we've been doing some big things. So I'm excited to continue my work with them. Very cool. Um, obviously, in the wake of George Floyd's killing, there's been a huge focus on. Um, the racial disparities and injustice um, for the past year that's present in America. And for me personally, I feel like that has put a magnifier on how it is in the music industry as well. And then on top of that, we've had COVID, right? This pandemic that's basically shut down the music industry for the most part. Okay. And now we're talking about the, there's possibly light at the end of the tunnel. You just had a gig today, um, not, in, not in a nightclub, let me clarify, but um, at the Silver Room live stream with just a few people there. And people are talking about when we get back to doing events and with the vaccine, it seems like it's, it's safe to start thinking about it again and, and, and planning, pre-planning. And I wonder if you share this, to me, it feels like an opportunity to, we're almost starting fresh. Like everything was shut down. Now we're having to start up again, almost starting fresh. And there's an opportunity there to reassess how we're doing things, right? For like promoters, club owners, venue owners, DJs, labels possibly too. Um, so I've really thought about how do I want to um, take advantage of that opportunity going forward as far as diversity and messaging and, um, just my role in music in general. What do you see going forward? Do you see um, the potential for things to be done differently? And what are some of the things you would like to see if, if so? Mm, differently in terms of anything in particular? Well, for me, it's been about um, race inclusion. Definitely taking some of the things that we've been focusing on um, in the last year and I've been very active in sort of the protest movement and justice and how can I transfer those things that are important to me to music because there's all this inequity there as well. Okay. So how do I transfer that to what I'm doing there. So for me it's that but anything that speaks strongly to you. Um, that you've seen in music that this could be an opportunity to shift that. Yeah. I think, you know, when, when I started in-house or when I first started clubbing or whatever you want to call it, um, I think we had gotten to a place where, uh, like you take a night like Red Dog, like Boom Boom Room, where there was so much diversity in that crowd, so much space for 
everybody and anybody and everything and everyone. And I would love to see that happen again. Um, so it wouldn't be like we're reinventing the wheel. I mean, we wouldn't be inventing a new wheel. We'd be reinventing the, that wheel, but that wheel was special. And, um, you know, if you could have Dennis Rodman, Carmen Electra, Madonna, you know, Mimi Marks, Bird Bardot, Javon, Spencer Kinsey, Diz, myself, Colette, you know, all of these people, everybody, gay, straight, black, white, Jew, Gentile, all of the above in this room, interacting, connected. That's what I feel is missing. I feel like we've separated ourselves down to the bone, honey. It's, it's kind of silly to me that if you don't like a certain type of music, that you only go a place where you can hear one type of music or, or you have a favorite music. And so you don't, you take yourself out of the running to experience all kinds of other things. And so um, I just remember like a few years back when the, the new deep house was hidden and um, you know, the white kids or the techno kids had reappropriated the term deep house for their music. And they were calling really what was tech tech house or a deep tech house or a minimal tech, I don't know. But they had started calling it deep house. And so I was like, what is all this deep house, you know? And I got to know, you know, I, I don't know how these people find me, but they find me. So I started being invited to play these type of parties. And I was like, but that was cool because it informed me. I got to study, I got to, understand this different type of music that may have gone unnoticed by me. So, you know, if I'm playing a set with Bruno Pranzato, I kind of want to know what he sounds like. And so you start investigating a little more and, and, you know, I knew my, my dude, Tim Baker, you know, he was dabbling in that stuff. And, um, I, I definitely weaved that stuff into my sound to be more appealing to that type of audience. I liked it. I liked some of that. I didn't, I didn't resent that. I didn't feel like I was doing it to appeal to them. I found stuff within that that was housey enough to me that made me go like, okay, I dig where they're going with this. Um, so anything that expands my vocabulary, I'm all for. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm committed to education. So I think of that as, you know, I don't know it all when it comes to music. And if I can learn some new things, cool. Some people close themselves off to that type of thing. They have their thing and they, that's what it is. And I, I noticed that the same thing happened with the clubs. So even if you knew the club owner and they really liked what you did, if they had a club that was being patronized by a certain set of people, they might want to book you, but they wouldn't because they didn't think the audience was going to go for it. And that's silly because we're the teachers, we're the instructors. The students don't tell the teacher what they want to learn. I mean, they do, but it's a little, it's mostly a give and take, right? So like you have a syllabus and you know what you are supposed to teach them. You know what you want the learning outcomes to be, 
but, um, and then you take some feedback along the way, like, and you make adjustments. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Not that the students come in and go, I don't like this and I don't want to learn that. And so, but I guess if you have the opportunity to leave, you can, <laughs> I guess it makes that, makes that a little more difficult with, with college. You can't, I mean, I guess you could drop the class, but most people are going to stick it out. So, <laughs> so I guess you have to make your club so appealing that they stick it out. I don't know. Um, but the, but the, the truth is, is that the clubs and the club owners really got away from what it was, which was people went to clubs to hear new music, not the stuff that you hear on the radio. They wanted to learn, they wanted to be taught, they wanted to leave with something, you know, unheard that they could go find later. Um, and, and so it got too segmented. So my thing would be, if we could do anything right again, it would be to throw parties with diverse lineups, with diverse interests and make people come together and learn new things, experience new people, make new friends and step out of their comfort zones. And so you might see something that, you know, or hear something or find something or meet someone that changes your life. Amen. <laughs> Tell it. Um, I think that is where, I mean, we can look back through not just our own experiences, but back to disco and, and throughout music, um, probably rock and roll and um, jazz and um, all sorts and say that that's probably where a lot of the magic happened for a lot of audiences was being exposed to diversity that they weren't necessarily looking for um didn't know that they were missing out on but when they had it were like wow and i know that happened for me um and if that isn't the case how else did all these um black-led forms of music become so popular i mean that speaks to what you're talking about exactly right yeah and so yeah that's um a vision that i would love to see happening more because it's so often audiences will be open to what you're giving them if you deliver it right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you can deliver Little Wayne, you can deliver Derek Carter. Uh, it's, it's all the same. Uh, people basically ingest what you give them. So um, I remember just being at the last Lollapalooza and the crowd for Little Wayne was insane, and it was the it was extremely diverse. <laughs> it was black kids getting like crushed and white kids getting crushed, <laughs> and and they were crushing each other just to get a look and a listen at Little Wayne, and what he's singing about I don't know, but it's it's got a good beat, <laughs> and and they can dance to it. So, um, so yeah, it's just a matter of what you decide to feed them. And right now the diet is very weak. It is very weak. It's all about drugs. I, I feel like, I'm like, what pharmaceutical company is paying these people to make a song that this says Percocet? <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, we have the we have the street version of that too, you know, songs that just list off all the drugs. Um, and it brings up an interesting question because drugs are obviously, have been part of music culture. Again, all those music cultures that we go can go back through, the number of rock and roll greats who have drug problems and drug stories and and it's part of the culture. And yet, this has been a thing for me for quite some time. Um, if you can enjoy the music without the drugs, then maybe how much do you really love the music? Mm -hmm. you know? um, and a lot of the times I think that stuff is just about the fast buck, right? For the, for the industry, for the music industry, what's gonna sell, what's easy, what do we know people will buy? Um, oh, and make a song about this, make a song about that. Um, well, yeah, that's when you get to the point where you're selling out for the most part, right? You, the label is like, we want this. You have that, we, and they buy that, right? So if you know that they're buying something, you create it so it can be sold. If you look at music as a commodity, then that's what you're doing to, to make it in, Amer in the American music market. Um, in terms, especially in terms of black artists, right? Black artists to me are not doing, are not doing right by the community. They're sort of in it for themselves. So whatever they can extract from the machine, they will do what it takes. They will put on the thong, they will show the ass, they will rap about the drugs, and the guns. And so there's no personal responsibility taken there. It's, it's very selfish. Um, and so uh, the labels keep buying it, so they keep selling it. If the labels started buying something else, they would make something else. That's, this is, you know, this is not, uh, they wouldn't go like, man, we got to keep rapping about these Mollies and Percocets. We got to, um, you know, y'all going to take this stuff. No, if the labels were like, no, we want more positive music. We need, you know, music that's more positive and has a, a better um, influence on people. And guess what? There is that music out there. People are making that music. They're, they're not buying it, though. So they're buying the most common, debased, selfish, you know, stuff and, and putting it on the radio and programming people with it. And so that's why they call it radio programming. It's programming. So they are, um, they're basically feeding kids, you know, what do you call it? Just nothing. They're feeding kids nothing. And then they wonder why people don't have a great sense of themselves or, you know, some sort of problems with the world. <laughs> and they're not really doing anything to increase the peace. So yeah, I that's I I mean you were saying that, but I, I feel like there's responsibility on in the on the parts of the labels and they aren't doing right by the world um, because they're turning, 
they're acting like there are no alternatives to this. There are plenty of alternatives to this. And people who know, know. Yeah, I remember, um, and this was about 20 years ago, so I don't know what it looks like now, but I'm sure it's not too far off being um, in a class and being shown like a, a chart that was a breakdown of the umbrella companies above the radio stations, the distro, the labels, um, and all of that, and how it was all coming back to one or two umbrella companies that were buying the time, owning all of these different factions of the music industry, and so able to completely manipulate um, what was being put out there and what would get heard and what would get fed to people. And I think we saw that tragedy with hip hop rap where it started out as really um, a form of empowerment for black people, right? Yeah, like an after system and um, lifting each other up and then completely got manipulated and turned around into a like, no, just keep yourself in this place, you know? Like self-destruction is cool and destroying others is cool. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's and, been really- Yeah, degrading women is cool and- yeah. It didn't used to be like that at all. And that was what was coming from the black artists. Like that's what genuinely was coming out was this empowerment. And then um, now this other stuff is, is a different story and we're seeing the effects of it. And I think you were saying something similar almost about house music and electronic music, right? It's the labels, it's the industry behind that's pulling all the, um, making all the decisions and pulling all the levers and deciding what gets sold and what doesn't. That's controlling the content rather than the artists. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we get back to that more, you know? I think people have to join together. People have to, somebody, people have to make the decision that there is strength in numbers. And once you've decided that you can pull your resources because it, it, it becomes about resources at the end of the day. And when you can pull your resources, you can go farther faster. Very true. You got me thinking now. <laughs> um, just to backpedal a little bit. Yeah, the wheels are turning. Tell me a little bit about Delectable, your work with record labels. And is there um, future plans? Or I know the digital thing was a big change. So just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, delectable, delectable, Lady D. So 2004, I start this label. Uh, I had worked uh, for underground construction, strictly hype recordings, and ran the after hours label, which was their, uh, which was their underground house label. And at that time, I got to do some really cool things, but I got to understand all of the inner and outer workings of a real record label. Um, strictly Hype Music, Strictly Hype Recordings, SHR, they were about a $5 million company and a, a dance independent. And they had created a real machine and they had a you know big space in the suburbs and um, it was a great opportunity to really learn how the record industry worked how you work with a distributor, 
how you do licensing uh, and how you uh, market music uh, to an audience, how you target people. And so, um, and then how you, how you run a stable of musicians. Like they essentially had like a little campus of studios that different artists and producers would come in and out of and um, you know, from everything from sales to merchandising to uh, shipping, warehousing, uh, the manufacturing process. So I learned everything there was to learn about a label um, within the span of two years. And, um, and then after I left them in 2001 or two, I, I, I guess I was just DJing. Yeah, I was just DJing. I remember. <laughs> I was just DJing and, uh, and I started really traveling a lot at that time. And then in 2004, I met somebody who said, what do you want to do in life? And I was like, I think I want to have a record label, but I'm not sure. And they were like, if I gave you money, would you start a record label? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, so I started a record label. And so my partner, um, Steve, who was basically my finance guy, um, but he let me do all the creative and uh, I launched Electable. So I had gone to Winter Music Conference a bunch of times, met distributors um, out of New York and I just went to them and said, if I start a label, would you guys be interested? And they said, hell yeah, we'd be interested. I was like, dope. So, um, so I had my distributor. And after that, it was about, you know, finding artists to do things. And my idea was that I would really focus on Chicago and Chicago artists and mixing veteran artists with new artists. So to me, every um, release was going to be an EP where I was putting together like classic Chicago artists that people knew with some young people that people did not know, um, but that I thought were great and needed exposure. And so I feel like as a formula that really worked for a long time. So for probably like the first five releases, I had, you know, maybe four tracks on every record. So, so I worked with like 20 different artists within the first five releases. And then I did more specialized releases. I think around that six release, I did, um, I think I did Mark Grant remixing Jamie Principal. And um, the fact that older artists supported the idea and, you know, were willing to give me product, they, you know, I, listen, I wasn't some well-known label or whatever, right? But Chicago was very supportive of each other. And I think that no matter what people say, I will always feel like Chicago people should support Chicago people. Cause I've never not felt, or maybe I shouldn't say never, but to me, what if, if I ever did, I have forgotten all about it. I have always felt supported in Chicago. And so the, um, the, the, the type of love that I received just, you know, asking people, would you give me a track? Would you give me a track? Would you, you know, and sometimes people would be like, yeah. And sometimes people would be like, no, but, but basically everybody said, yeah. 
anybody that I approached. So that was really cool. I did 12 releases on vinyl. Um, and then, yeah, then everything went digital. And my distributor went out of business. So um, I was kind of figuring like, what am I gonna do? You know, it's like, this is terrible. And then I went to Amsterdam dance event and um, the guys from TrackSource introduced me to a German distributor, Fine Tunes, out of Germany. And I literally was like, yeah, I have this label, Delectable. And they were like, are you looking for distribution? And I was like, that's uncanny. Oh, yeah, I actually am. So they were like, call us when you get home. <laughs> okay, so I did that. And honestly, that's how kind of easy... I'm not going to say everything's been easy, but that's that's the type of situations that I have found myself in time after time. Like if I wanted something and I was visualizing it, it tended to happen. And I, I truly believe that it's a testament to like setting a goal for yourself, whether you write it down or whether you just think about it a lot. Hopefully you find yourself in situations where your steps have brought you to the place where you need to be to make those connections and put the pieces together. And so I was able to, um, to then go digital. Now digital is like a whole new ball of wax and digital, first of all, is not the same model as, um, as vinyl. So on the face of it, it sort of looks like it is, but it's not, you're talking, you know, pennies to dollars. And when you get into pennies, it's almost nothing. You have to have so much uh, aggregate, so many sales that it becomes prohibitive to really, you know, afford to pay artists and to, um, you know, to even get projects mastered properly and things like that. So it was to me a losing situation. Like, unless you are, unless you have the type of output or a stable that you can pull from um, all the time. And I mean, literally the game is you need to have constant releases. So many releases that how do you even make one release really stand out from another? So that's why you have this gut, this glut, glut, this glut, is that a word? This glut. <laughs> I think that's why, yeah, this glut of so many songs and so much product and so many, so many, it's single after single after single after single. And it's just so much out there that, um, you know, you have to wade through a lot of stuff to get to the goodness. Um, but yeah, because you can't make money any other way. And I mean, I, I'm sure people have heard the stories about Spotify and artists who are upset. I mean, pop artists who selling millions and millions of millions of streams and downloads and uh, get a check for $4,000, you know, that's rough, that's rough. And so I realized that I was not going to be able to sustain that. That was not sustainable. And it made no sense to really do it. It made no sense to me to put things out and let them flounder. Um, I like to be able to at least point to a certain number of sales. It starts to get real negligible when you're talking about 
you know, 200 spins or whatever, it's, it's not enough. And it's not enough to go back to an artist and, and say, can I get a follow-up? You know, <laughs> like it just was terrible. So, so I actually just turned delectable into more of a marketing thing. So if I do an event, if I create something, it's under delectable as the marketing um, brand that is pushing it. So, you know, cause sometimes I do things and I'm not even playing, you know, like I just want to do a thing. And if I come up with a concept or, or something, um, I usually try to make it under delectable because I love the brand and I love what I did with it. And I'm not going to let that go. You know, delectable could be anything. And, and I said that from the very beginning, like I could make marshmallows and put delectable on it. So <laughs> that sounds really good. No, right. <laughs> you might see it one day. <laughs> I'll be looking out. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, that was delectable. I mean, and I say that in terms of like the musical side, um, but I still get, I still get distros who come to me and say, Hey, do you ever want to start delectable? If you ever want to do your label again, let us know. And I consider it, I definitely consider it just because I do miss that part. I miss A&R and I miss signing projects and, you know, seeing if you can make something happen or creating something that, you know, people still play. Um, people have, I've heard a few mixes where people have pulled out something from Delectable and I'm like, yes, that's so awesome. So we'll see. <laughs> Do platforms like Bandcamp change any of that for you? Uh, mm, no, not really. I, not really. Mm -mm. No. Mm -mm. I think that they have a better model in terms of taking less and giving more. But I still think you still have to sell an inordinate amount to make anything stick and how often do you buy music from Bandcamp? like dance music how often i think it's probably more popular for uh, maybe bands and rock and rock bands or, or indie bands or whatever um you know i just don't mm. yeah i've looked into it i've bought i've probably bought 10 or 20 songs off of Bandcamp for my own personal use as a DJ. So I don't really think of it as a platform where DJ oriented dance music would really pop off in, it, in any different way than it does on TrackSource or Beatport or you know any of the other dance related digital download sites. What do you think? I have bought more and more from Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. um, for a while, what I would do is find what I wanted on Beatport because I've been using Beatport for however many years. So I have it all customized to my artists, my labels, easy to find, and then search for it on Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, the interface for Bandcamp is the biggest drawback for me. Like searching is not easy. Um, it's a bit clunky. 
but I do find more and more artists and labels are putting their music on there. Sometimes I'm surprised, like I don't think I'm going to find it on there. Mm. And it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do know of a couple of people who smaller boutique labels that are um, selling solely on Bandcamp and it's working out well for them to do it that way. Okay. Vinyl too, like um, all vinyl releases as well. So. Yeah. Now the people who are smart have gone back to vinyl, right? Because that model is very dollars and cents. So if you press up this many and sell this many, you know, wholesale costs, retail costs, make the deduction and you have your profit and you pay your artists and you can get things done. You can pay for your marketing, your promotion and the things you do to make people you know aware of your product vinyl still makes sense to me and i love that there are people out there that are still buying vinyl i got a piece of vinyl today that um i was while i was playing at the record store rob mckay came in who uh, works with ron trent and then he came back and brought us some records and i was like new ron trent that's what's up (laughs) so can't wait to play it actually I had only been recording and using um, my, you know, Pioneer setup and everything is on flash drives, but I recently pulled out one of my decks and, you know, put it, at least put it into the mix so that if I want to put a record into the, you know, the mixes that I make that I could. And I really love that I did that. Now it's, you know, it's harder to play like, one turntable, but, <laughs> but it's, it's cool. It's cool. Cause I have, a, I have a little stand and a little footprint. So it's just, it's just me like not wanting to spread all the way out. Um, but, but yeah, I'm kind of, I kind of liking vinyl again, for sure. So now do I want to be, do I want to take delectable back to being a vinyl label? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't rule anything out there, Jessica, nothing. Yeah, I get that about you, for sure. <laughs> I look forward to seeing whatever, whatever comes when we are um, back to a bit more normalcy. Um, we talked, and I'll wrap it up soon. We've gone a little bit over, but we've talked a fair bit about um, branding, the logistics of the music industry, um, what makes sense financially, but I, I suspect there's a, a spiritual component in music for you as well. And I just wonder if you'd be willing to share a little bit about if there is and what that looks like for you, whether it's as a DJ or as um, someone just on the dance floor or just being involved in music in general. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um... I think the first thing that comes to mind is God is love and I am a firm believer in love and I work to express love in everything I do. I fall short and I reassess and I keep going with the idea that I'm not my mistakes. And so um, that sort of forgiveness exists and I, um, 
I embrace it for myself and for others. And so house music to me is love. It's a little godlike to me. And people will tell you that you saved their life. Um, I've had that experience multiple times with people. And it always comes at a time when I doubt it or question why I do what I do. And so, um, so it informs me at that time, like, don't question it, like accept it. And so even when I thought maybe I would like retire or leave this thing behind, uh, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Like the gigs come in harder and, and faster and, <laughs> and heavier and bigger. And so um, it's like that, uh, that Al Pacino scene, like, they keep pulling me in or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, you're either, I think you're either called to do it or you're not. And the calling is something that's really hard to deny. And that's why it doesn't surprise me that people who got into it at one time or another may or may not still be doing it. Um, I think you, you'll get to a point where it's either cutting it or it's not cutting it. And uh, for people for whom it doesn't, you know, doesn't cut it anymore, they, they leave, they bow out. And um, it's not for everybody. And I think that spiritual part of it is a big part of it. So, so I do feel connected to it in a bigger way, like drawn to it um, almost mystically. And, and I like it. I embrace that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I feel like there's so much more I could talk to you about. I know there's so much more I could talk to you about, but we should leave it there. Do you want to just um, share your website or any social media where people can find you? Okay. So you can find me at djladydchicago.com. That's my website. And on most social media, I'm just djladyd, uh, like Twitter, Instagram. On Facebook, I'm djladydchicago. And um, I also have a site for good girls, uh, goodgirlsdjs.com. So if you ever want to know where we're going to be, uh, but I tend to put everything on DJ Lady D Chicago in terms of what I'm doing. And uh, Insta is probably the other platform. And Facebook is, I engage more on my personal page. But if you want to keep up with me as um, a follower or whatever, just go to DJ Lady D Chicago. And I have, you know, music news specific to DJ Lady D on that page. So, yeah, that's it. I'm on, I'm on all the platforms. I'm on, on Snapchat and TikTok, but. You know. <laughs> oh, you are ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, you can just look for DJ Lady D. She be doing it. <laughs> yes, she does. She does. Thank you so much, D. Uh, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Namaste. <laughs>